Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Paul Kirby, a research fellow at the Centre for Women, Peace and Security here at the LSE, uh, which is hosting tonight's event. It's both an honour and a pleasure to welcome you to Women, Peace and Security in the Global Arena, which is the title of tonight's talk. Uh, the event marks a special occasion in that it is the first time that the world's leading centres and institutes dedicated to studying gender, peace and security have gathered together to discuss uh, their work. So each of these centres conducts specialist analysis on the Women, Peace and Security, or WPS, agenda, by which we mean the architecture of policy at the United Nations, in individual state, foreign and domestic policy, and increasingly in the doctrine of collective security organisations such as NATO and the African Union, which is dedicated to women's rights in conflict and post-conflict situations. So the agenda is conventionally traced uh, to UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which was passed in October uh, of the year 2000, but which obviously built on decades of organising by feminist uh, social uh, movements. And Resolution 1325, the the founding um, uh, document of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, um, did a few things. It stressed the need to increase the participation of women in conflict resolution, security governance and peace building, It called for a gender perspective and the greater involvement of women in peacekeeping missions. And it also sought the guarantee of women's uh, human rights and the greater protection of women from gender-based violence during and in the aftermath um, of war. So today it is usually described as consisting of four pillars, uh, which are participation, uh, protection, prevention and post-conflict reconstruction. In short, the WPS agenda represents in bureaucratic and foreign policy language the political project of gender equality. So since 2000, the agenda has expanded in many directions through seven further Security Council resolutions, specifically collected under the title Women and Peace and Security, uh, as well as in associated resolutions, for example, on sexual exploitation and abuse Uh, in peacekeeping missions, through the development of national action plans by individual um, countries in both their foreign and sometimes their domestic policy to implement the agenda, through initiatives like the UK's Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative, through new United Nations positions and campaigns, and also through a range of international organisations apart from the UN. So I'm going to introduce each of our distinguished speakers in a moment. Each will speak for around 10 to 12 minutes followed by questions and answers discussion with you, our audience, and concluding no later than 8 p.m., at which point you're invited to join us um, outside for a reception. So just some housekeeping. Please silence um, all phones and devices. If you are so moved, there is a hashtag for the evening's event, which is LSEWPS, and the event is being filmed, and technology permitting will be podcast um, uh, up online in the next week or so. So um, to our speakers starting from nearest to me and going along. Uh, Christine Chinkin is founding director of the Center for Women, Peace and Security and Emerita Professor of International Law at the LSE. She's a leading expert on the uh, UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women and was scientific advisor to the Council of Europe Committee that drafted the Convention on Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, also known as the Istanbul Convention, which is the most far-reaching international treaty to date, aimed at tackling violence against women and domestic violence. She was also specialist advisor to the recent House of Lords Select Committee on Sexual Violence in Conflict and is a member of the steering board of the Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative of the UK Government that I mentioned earlier. 
Next to Christine is uh, Jenny Klugman, who is Managing Director at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security and a Fellow at the Kennedy School of Government's Women in Public Policy Program at Harvard University. She was previously Director of Gender Development at the World Bank and Director and Lead Author of no less than three Global Human Development Reports published by UNDP. She sits on several boards and panels, including for the World Economic Forum and the Journal of Human Development and Capabilities. Next to her is Nana Bema Unti, who is the faculty coordinator at the Faculty of Academic Affairs and Research at the Kofi Annan Peacekeeping Training Center in Ghana. She previously worked on the pilot project that established the Women, Peace and Security Institute within the Peacekeeping Training Center, and Nana has worked on different assignments with the International Labor Organization, as well as a volunteer uh, with the UN Development Fund for Women, and she holds a master's degree in development studies from the LSE. Uh, and next to Nana is uh, Torin Trigestad, who is director of the Center on Gender, Peace and Security at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo. Torun is a leading expert on WPS, in particular in relation to UN peacebuilding and peace operations institutions and in the implementation of Security Council Resolution 325. In February 2017, the UN Secretary General appointed uh, Torun to join the advisory group of the UN Peacebuilding Fund. She has extensive experience from teaching and training and the provision of policy advice to relevant Norwegian ministries, the armed forces and the justice sector. And in recent years, she has been involved in high-level seminars and gender and inclusive uh, mediation processes together with the UN Department of Political Affairs and the Crisis uh, Management Institute. And finally, uh, we have Jackie True, who is Professor and Director of Monash's University's uh, Centre for Gender, Peace and Security, which is in the School of Social Sciences. She is also an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and a Global Fellow uh, with the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. Her current research is focused on understanding the political economy of post-conflict violence against women and the patterns of systematic and gender-based violence in Asia-Pacific conflict-affected countries. Her recent publications include The Political Economy of Violence Against Women with Oxford University Press, and she is co-editor with Sarah Davies of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook on Women, Peace and Security. So Professor Chinkin uh, will speak first, followed by Dr. Klugman, Nana Nti, Dr. Trigestad, and Professor True. So please join me in welcoming them. Thank you very much, Paul. And I'd just add that it's absolutely great having the directors from all the other women or gender, peace and security institutes. Um, okay, women, peace and security in the global arena. I'm going to talk about this from the United Kingdom perspective and think particularly about the UK's record with respect to women, peace and security. Now, in many ways, of course, the record has been impressive. The UK, as Paul has just mentioned, launched the PSVI initiative, the Prevention of Sexual Violence in Armed Conflict initiative, which is now endorsed by over 155 states worldwide. It's been a long-term women, peace and security champion. And through these um, various measures, I think you can point to a number of high spots in UK policy. So, for example, it certainly raised the profile and political awareness of conflict-affected sexual violence. It's produced the International Protocol on the Documentation and Investigation of Sexual Violence and Conflict. This is a practical toolkit for enhancing accountability. It's now in its second edition. It's been widely translated. It's widely used. Um, there is cross-departmental responsibility 
um, in the FCO, DFID, the MOD. It's been incorporated into the national security strategy. It provides training, training programs to militaries abroad. It's now working on its fourth national action plan. So, you know, the UK looks pretty good about all of this. But, and before I go into the real buts, uh, I ought to also, of course, make the caveat that we don't know who the government is going to be as of, the, as of this week. Um, but I would note that the Conservative Party manifesto includes that it will, quote, continue to lead global efforts to tackle sexual violence and conflict. It makes other relevant commitments, for instance, with respect to girls' education, closing the gender pay gap, and tackling modern slavery. Labour's manifesto commits to fighting inequality and misogyny in every part of society, to enforcing minimum standards and tackling domestic and social violence, and, quote, the values of peace, universal rights, and international law. So both leading parties do incorporate policies that underpin women, peace, and security. But I think it's noticeable that neither makes any explicit reference to a holistic or coherent commitment to women, peace, and security. It's a sort of underpinning to those agendas. So, okay, there's a generally good starting point for whoever is the government after the end of this week. But I want to address really three main points. First, the need to ensure a systematic inclusion across all UK policies, domestic and foreign policy. Secondly, the role of the United Kingdom in ensuring systematic and regular incorporation of women, peace and security into all policies and programs of the Security Council. And then thirdly, that the UK responds positively to the contemporary challenges to women, peace and security and more broadly to women's human rights in the current adverse, I would say, geopolitical environment and very briefly the role of academia in doing this. And so underlying all three of these points are two overriding concerns. First, securing implementation of existing commitments and ensuring the continued commitment to and ongoing advance of the women, peace and security agenda in light of contemporary pushbacks. So first, UK um, domestic policy. I think that despite the cross-departmental um, approach to women, peace and security, the UK's record has been considerably weakened by a compartmentalisation of policies and failures to ensure commitment to women, peace and security is maintained in and across all domestic and foreign policies. So with regard to domestic policy, prevention of abuse, gender-based violence and upholding the human rights of women are core elements of women, peace and security. There are some progressive pledges, yes, but these have not been systematically integrated or adequately resourced. For instance, there's the ongoing continued failure to ratify the Istanbul Convention. Conviction rates for rape in our national court remain lower than for other crimes and, I think, lamentably, if not horrifically, low. Economic cuts have curtailed services designed to support victims of violence against women, constituting a serious threat to women's rights and to the sustainability of women's organisations. In the context of migrants, refugees or asylum seekers, no commitments have been made in either PSVI 
or in the third National Action Plan. The Shadow National Action Plan that was prepared by an NGO, the Agenda Action Group for Peace and Security, GAPS, points to the accusation that the UK in this regard has double standards. To quote, whereby it actively champions the rights of women and girls internationally, while those who come to the UK to seek asylum are often met with scepticism from the Home Office, are at times detained, and are at risk of being returned to unsafe countries. The CEDAW Committee, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, also has expressed concern at its reports of lack of agenda-sensitive approaches by immigration authorities towards women who are victims of violence. With regard to foreign policy, um, the UK again has clearly led in making women, peace and security issues, particularly through PSPI, an appropriate matter for foreign policy. But this, this should mean that gender analysis is incorporated into all national security thinking and decision-making. And this includes with respect to its relations with other governments. And here of particular concern is the continued support for governments that have a shocking record with respect to women's human rights and continued export of arms to such countries, notably, of course, Saudi Arabia. The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has called on the international community, again to quote, to refrain from encouraging or arming parties to the conflict in Yemen in light of the military operations, airstrikes by Saudi forces that have been widely condemned as violating international humanitarian law, causing civilian deaths, widespread destruction to civilian infrastructure, and high food insecurity. All such incidents of warfare have gendered consequences, with particular impact on the lives and experiences of women and girls. Again, to quote the CEDAW Committee, women and girls often disproportionately suffer notably due to forced displacement, sexual violence, trafficking, lack of access to health care, and lack of access to victim and survivor assistance. Now, the legality of the export of arms to Saudi Arabia is questionable, whether it's um, legal under national law, EU law, international law. It's currently under consideration through judicial review by the High Court, but I think whatever the legality, the opinion with respect to legality, In the words of one of my colleagues, the UK's involvement in the armed conflict in Yemen, ongoing now since March 2015, may prove to be the measure against which the government's commitment to the United Nations Women, Peace and Security Agenda will be judged in the years to come. Second, um, incorporation, oh gosh, (laughs) incorporation into Security Council policies and mandates. This is haphazard, very haphazard. So the um, Women, Peace and Security agenda is um, incorporated, obviously, into those specific resolutions, but it's only included haphazardly into other resolutions. And the United Kingdom is a leader in the Security Council, and as a leader in the Security Council, it should take responsibility for ensuring the principles of women, peace, and security into all country-specific mandates, into all situations um, where issues that are relevant are raised. And it's noticeable that this is just simply not the case. So, for example, in a recent resolution, 
about trafficking and the connection between human trafficking, terrorism and sexual violence, where clearly women, peace and security issues are appropriate, there is largely silence. And further, in the latest Secretary General's report, trafficking is linked explicitly to terrorism and sexual violence, which again obviously has an important linkage, but it runs the risk both of ignoring other forms of trafficking, trafficking for labour exploitation, for example, and also um, risks co-opting or instrumentalising women, peace and security to other agendas as they come up before the, before the Security Council, rather than ensuring its importance as a freestanding um, agenda dedicated to issues relating to women's human rights. Um, I think responding in the current environment to what we are seeing as pushbacks to women's human rights has to be something that the whichever government we have next week must keep to the forefront. It's made its own commitments. It's made commitments through PSVI and Women, Peace and Security. It should stick to them. them. It needs allies in this and must bring other states on board. What also remains uncertain at this point is the impact of Brexit around securing allies with respect to women, peace and security. I was going to say something about the role of academia in this, um, but I've run out of time, so I won't. <laughs> Thank you, Christine, and it's, it's lovely to be here this evening. Uh, what I was going to do was to talk about uh, what we're doing at Georgetown, at the Georgetown Institute of Women, Peace and Security, uh, where I've just joined relatively recently, the last several months, um, after coming from a background more on the development, poverty and inequality side. Uh, and I wanted to give you a flavour of what we're doing in terms of um, the research, uh, both the previous research uh, and upcoming strategic priorities, as well as our role in terms of convening and outreach uh, beyond academia. But I'll start very briefly with the origins of the Institute, which came about kind of in terms of announcements in 2011, actually the same year as the US National Action Plan um, was launched. Um, the centre itself came about kind of in, term, in operational terms uh, just in 2013. And the, the motivation was very much around building the evidence base uh, for women, peace and security. There were these UN Security Council resolutions which had been in place for over a decade by that time, but there was a need to increase awareness, but also increase the understanding about what works, the role of women in peace building, and, and the broader agenda. Um, and so we've been engaging on these fronts over the last several years. We're housed at Georgetown University, which is in Washington, D.C., um, and specifically in the School of Foreign Service, which has a range of programs, um, but we are a cross-campus uh, initiative. So we have relationships with the law school, with the business school, the School of Public Policy, and so on. Um, we don't run courses in the way that, for example, the LSE does, um, but we do have quite extensive student engagement through their kind of direct role at the Institute in terms of engaging in research. Um, they're very active student associations that we're very supportive of. Um, 
We have run uh, specific courses and we have quite an um, active event program, ministerial roundtables, major public events, which are, I think, uh, important opportunities for, for students to engage, as pictured here. Um, on the research side, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a flavour of the sorts of work that we do. I think one nice example is a publication called Women Leading Peace, um, which came out a couple of years ago. Uh, the focus was on four countries um, and the peace processes that took place in Northern Ireland, Kenya, Guatemala and the Philippines and clearly uncovered a wealth of kind of knowledge and detail through quite um, detailed field work uh, with women in particular as well as men who've been engaged in those processes. Uh, but findings that very much underline the role of civil society in these negotiations, not as kind of politicians but as actors um, in their own rights and building um, kind of processes, strengthening processes leading to more sustainable peace. Um, and then associated with this publication is what I think it's fair to say is kind of a, a Georgetown tradition where we had, you know, major public events. So Madeleine Albright, 800 people, a good way of getting kind of major traction and awareness around these very important results. Um, here I'm just highlighting a couple of forthcoming publications around uh, transitional justice in Tunisia and Colombia, uh, which are coming out uh, later this year about women's leadership uh, roles in terms of kind of building inclusive mechanisms in the peace negotiations and actually leading to important gains in terms of the shape of the provisions. And I'm happy to go into more detail um, in questions if there's some interest. We're uh, currently pulling together some work now um, which are more in a kind of conflict context um, and the range of tools that women are employing to advance uh, their agendas, including the National Action Plan but not restricted to that in terms of um, engagement. Um, one um, new piece of work which we're doing jointly with uh, Turun and, and Prio um, is a global index um, coming up out very much from the 1325 agenda um, that was uh, explained very well earlier but trying to bridge that agenda um, closely with the development agenda. So we know that there are various global indices. Um, it was mentioned that I had um, some tenure at the Human Development Report, where we produce the Human Development Index every year and rank about 180 countries. Um, but the, the, the traditional gender indices are very much focused on aspects like employment, education, political participation. If you look at the, the peace indices, they're looking at kind of measures of peace and security, but abstracting and neglecting any consideration of the gender dimension. So the intention here is very much to bridge the gap there and bring together something which measures these three dimensions around inclusion, justice and security. Again, I can go into more detail, but we think that this provides a much more comprehensive, a richer, more nuanced picture of women's well-being, and in fact we're able to estimate this for over 150 countries. So watch this space, we're going to be launching this in, uh, in, in October of this year. Um, another example of the sort of work that we do is kind of capturing oral histories, and some of the other institutes are doing this very well as, as well. Um, and this is kind of documenting and highlighting the stories of women who have been on the front lines of peace and capturing these in ways which are readily accessible um, online and have proved to be very popular. Um, in terms of convenings, um, we do kind of major events which have you know, high-level people and um, 
kind of large public profile. Uh, a, kind of a, another stream which is worth highlighting, and I think it's relevant to the idea of kind of academic outreach, is a series which we call Bridging Theory and Practice. So the idea here is to have off-the-record discussions between academic scholars, uh, practitioners and, and grassroots um, activists as well as policymakers. Focus very much on kind of specific um, kind of policy challenges, uh, developing innovative solutions. You can see the list of topics that we've um, covered in the past, including transitional justice, peace support operations, uh, countering violent extremism. Um, the public events are an important opportunity for us in Washington, D.C. to reach influential policymakers, and we do this both with respect to kind of domestic policymakers in the U.S. government, but also through the role of Milan Vivier, um, our executive director, um, and her connections with a whole range of kind of global leaders. And so we're quite well placed in the sense of being able to host those sorts of convenings, um, and some examples are mentioned here. Um, and again, these do quite well in terms of raising public awareness and understanding around um, around the agenda. And then finally, in terms of convenings, um, I just wanted to mention um, the International Council on Women's uh, Business Leadership, which actually came out of the administration um, where it was born um, under Secretary Clinton. It's now housed at, the, at our institute. Um, it's mainly private sector leaders uh, as well as some public sector um, leaders, leading women across kind of a whole range of organisations looking at different aspects in terms of challenges on, um, on uh, women's economic empowerment. So in terms of our strategic priorities, um, just to give you a sense of some of the work uh, that we're um, focused on now in the, um, in the period ahead, I'll just highlight, I think, two or three of those. One is around uh, countering violent ex extremism, where we have done some work, some background work, um, some bridging theory and practice um, sessions. Uh, we've hosted panels at the UN, uh, side events at CSW, um, and we're planning now a symposium series for the, for the coming year because um, we feel that this is an area, again, where um, uh, more is needed in terms of deepening understanding, um, and it's clearly a continuing challenge around the world. Um, an area where I have a kind of personal interest in particular, kind of in addition to the, to the other areas, is around women's economic empowerment in fragile states. Um, the graphic that I've um, depicted here actually comes from the UN Secretary General's high-level panel on women's economic empowerment, which was launched uh, last fall, um, which I co-authored together with Professor Laura Tyson. And there we focused on kind of the underlying constraints, which are um, preventing women uh, from participating fully uh, in the economy. We focused on adverse norms, on legal discrimination, on the burden of unpaid care, um, the lack of access to assets, and then as well as the roles that the business community can play, that the public sector can play, and of course the role of collective voices as well. But I think it's fair to say, if you happen to look at that report, that there's very little there about fragile states, conflict and post-conflict situations. It was very much focused on, if you like, more stable situations. So there's an enormous agenda here to try and better understand what are the constraints, uh, particularly affecting women um, in fragile situations, and, and what can be done. So um, seeing the extent to which these same um, adverse drivers are in play, how they have... Um, 
how they limit uh, women's economic opportunities and what works in terms of overcoming those barriers over time. So we're looking forward to deepening the knowledge in, in, uh, in that area as well as um, on the very important front of, of climate change. Here we've done some work already, I think an excellent stock take review um, that was launched um, in, in 2016. We've hosted keynote panels including with the UN Special Envoy and others, um, but it's clearly an area I think as well where we would like to, um, to deepen the understanding and, um, and deepen the work. Um, and then finally, not least, um, the role that we can play in terms of enabling access to knowledge um, through platforms like our website. Um, if you happen to go to our website at the moment, it's a bit clunky, it's not ideal. Um, we're revamping, relaunching, not necessarily leaping into the 22nd century, but hopefully at least the 21st century. Um, and we really want to... Um, aim to become a go-to hub for important resources um, around women, peace and security um, through kind of a, a library, a vetted library of resources, through links um, and other facilities which would be available for academics, for policymakers um, and others. Uh, so there's our uh, various links um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions related to this. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and uh, first I want to thank the LSE CWPS for uh, organizing this forum and to thank you all for coming. Um, I'm from the Kofiana International Peacekeeping Training Center, and I'll say something very brief about the center before I start, um, start my presentation, which you realize is basically a case study to just show how scholars and academics uh, tackled the case of the Chippewa girls and brought it into the public view and um, direct and indirect pressure on the government to do something about the girls. The first thing is that we are a Ministry of Defence hybrid institution and work with, but we work with the military po um, police and civilians. We our interventions are mainly capacity building through training, education, research, and policy development support. Our scope is um, Africa, so we work with with the African Union, ECOWAS, um, the Economic Community of West African States. And for our gender, women, peace, and security interventions, we have the Women, Peace, and Security Institute that works within these areas, the same areas of training, education, research, and policy development support. And we have um, training courses, um, gender academic programs, and also undertake academic and policy research. That's the center-wide. And so we mainly look at um, the gaps in the implementation, the training needs assessments, but our interventions are more to do with capacity building than mainly activism and advocacy. So I basically wanted to use this um, better known case study to show how this works in a country very close to us in the same region of West Africa, in Nigeria. So this, but first a little disclaimer, because it's sort of within the research gap that it's not necessarily the ideas of the um, Kofi Annan Center. So, then, yeah. so now um, the outline. So it would have an introduction, the background to the insurgency, the government's WPS commitments the, for WPS pillars that were mentioned earlier, and examples within those pillars of the interventions and concluding thoughts. And I know with this, within this area of um, counterterrorism, I would also say that um, also remember the people who lost their lives recently here and or um, also the... Um, the violence that happened just recently, that side. So in West Africa, the Chibu case study, 
as some of you would know, or most of you would know, it happened on the abduction happened on the 14th of April 2014. There are officially 276 schoolgirls were, which who were abducted, and they were abducted from a government school in Chibok, Borno State, northern Nigeria, and they were actually gathered there, thinking that Chibok was a safe haven for them to all gather there to take their final secondary school examinations. And you can see the statistics, uh, I guess, to your left, to my right. And But what is most interesting about these statistics is the final one who refused to be released. And even though all these, uh, you'd think that all the girls would want to leave captivity, but um, one has refused and still there. And then background, as you know, it's... Um, with um, Boko Haram, who works, uh, well, I shouldn't say work, operates within the Lake Chad Basin. And the Lake Chad Basin, we're talking about Nigeria, Niger, Cameroon, and Chad, but mostly they operate within northern Nigeria. Um, they have been um, designated a terrorist organization by the UN, the African Union, ECOWAS, the United States, and others. And as you know, the operation is within killings, bombings, and kidnappings, unfortunately, with also female suicide bombers and, well, and girls as well. And then their main objective is an establishment of their own separate state. And it's an insurgency that's both value-based and interest-based. I guess with the whole idea of what their name loosely means, um, West, Western education civilization is forbidding. But it's more of a socioeconomic and political insurgency. Yes, there's the religious aspect, but it's more on which is the best governance system. And when they're talking about Western education, they feel that that has what has corrupted the political elite and providing the bad governance and the marginalization. So basically, that is the background. And it really they took a more violent turn in 2009, even though most scholars put their formation in their current form to 2002. And it is blamed due to the um, unexplained death of their founder and in police custody and when there was a major crackdown on it. But since then, um, the countless number of people have died in the Lake Chad Basin. Okay, so the Nigerian government's WP's commitments are quite similar to a lot of the other governments within the region. I mean, theirs is the primary responsibility to protect the girls and repatriate them. And these commitments can be found um, not only in the 1325 and UNHCR's arena, but through the Constitution. It's, and then we also have some African, um, African frameworks as well, the protocol, uh, or the African Union, the African Union Solemn Declaration, and as you can see, CEDAW, the Beijing Platform, Roman Statutes, and then the UNSCR's own Women, Peace, and Securities, and Nigerians' own National Action Plan, which I guess the latest version is in 2017. That's gone. Now, all of them cover all the four pillars, and even the Nigerian Action Plan even goes further with, within the pillars as well. And so... I'm just going to basically, I mean, they, and the um, action plan adds promotion and prosecution in addition to participation, relief and recovery, prevention, and um, protection. So within those four pillars, um, there have been interventions that brought the Chibok girls' case into the forefront and basically pressured the governments to come out of the silence for about, I think there was about silence for allegedly for over two weeks over the disappearance of the girls. So we have four examples. The first is of a lawyer. Um, I know that if you have heard of the case, the first way you heard about it was through the Twitter handle, Bring Back Our Girls. That was created by 
a lawyer, um, Ibrahim M. Abdullahi, and I guess he wasn't really, he didn't really mention the Women's Peace and Security Framework, but as a lawyer, he's going through the case of the government's responsibility to citizens of Nigeria and of the Constitution. He was wondering why there was not such an outcry of it when he read about it in the local newspaper. His, the Twitter handle was actually inspired by women. Um, a former World Bank vice president, uh, Madame Obi Ezekwiseli, as well, and so he brought it into the public space. And it was like an indirect pressure on the government. But what was interesting was that you needed um, several partnerships to bring this out. Other people had to tweet it because he did try different handles and they were not that successful. But this one went on and was retweeted and became um, one of the largest social media campaigns um, so far. So basically, you needed participation. So we'll now come on to um, Professor Okome, who is an international political economist and a professor of political science in um, New York. And basically, she joined the larger movement that was on the streets, um, the Bring Back Our Girls movement, and started um, her own, the New York version. And her co- and she created a coalition of not just academics, but an interfaith, international, and intersectoral co- coalition with the aim of bringing back the girls and also other, others who have been abducted by Boko Haram. And basically, they use both um, the social media and conferences and interviews and research to hold the government accountable. And it's, so it's a coalition of both men and women with different fields and expertise and backgrounds, but all with this one goal and purpose on that one. But then we also have um, researchers. We have um, coalitions between researchers and consortium. I mean, my, my center has also done some research on Boko Haram and on the cheaper girls. But here I would want to focus on the research that was done by the University of Migri in collaboration with the International Organization for Migration, the Ministry of Women's Affairs and Social Development of Bono State, UNICEF, and International Alert. The research was actually called Bad Blood. Um, published in 2016, Perceptions of Children Born of Conflict-Related Sexual Violence and Women and Girls Associated with Boko Haram in Northern Nigeria. Basically, it was trying to look at, well, it doesn't really look at the Chibu girls as um, per se, but more other women and girls who were um, in IDP camps. But what about for that there were other women and girls and boys who had been abducted by Boko Haram, even though most people know about the Chibuk girls. And they estimated from like 500 to 2,000. And this had been happening since 2012, even though the Chibuk girls case only was in April 2014. But what, what they, I guess, brings to the fore in the idea of Chibuk girls that everyone wants them to come back home, but what are the preparations when they return? Um, the, um, the title Bad Blood was really the perceptions of many of the community. I mean, they looked at also the families and of the government as well, of like children who were fathered by Boko Haram, that perhaps they'll also have the violent traits of their fathers when they come back, or women who had been associated, either meaning that they were within Boko Haram strongholds, forced wives, or by choice. They probably they were concerned that they had been radicalized. And also the rise in female suicide bombers did not help the case. Um, wrote about the stigma of su- survivors of sexual violence, marginalization, rejection, discrimination, abandonment. Um, so it basically was just um, assessing what the government's response had been. Um, I mean, basically, there was a response which they found within, well, the limited case study 
that basically it was limited and it didn't really include communities and to note that communities have also been through the trauma of Boko Haram and so they were uncertain of the people who were coming back in the fear. But they did say there were shifts in perceptions as long as, some were given exceptions as long as the women and girls had gone through government-led de-radicalization, rehabilitation processes, they probably would be willing to take them back. But the families were more, um, more accepting of the girls. And then the final one, which happened most recently, in, um, just in May 2017, well, the first one was on the 21st um, October 2016, was basically the negotiations and um, mediation that brought up a prisoner exchange for the, for the girls. And that was done by another lawyer, um, Zana Mustafa Esquire. And basically, he worked with the International Community of, um, Committee of the Red Cross to engage the government and Boko Haram. I mean, the, the present administration said in 2015 that they had a willingness to negotiate with credible leaders of Boko Haram, and thus he provided a platform so that basically, since they had, the government had said so, that they would also have that um, opportunity. And one interesting thing was that um, Mr. Esquire basically had gained credibility with both sides because he with the ICRC had found a school, I mean, that had um, provides uh, Islamic-based education to orphans, but of both sides, both of Boko Haram and of the, of the soldiers, and also to the poor. And ICRC provides free meals to the pupils and also food to the widows and other items on both sides. And he's trying to also mediate for an end to the insurgency. But it brings an interesting point about prevention because I guess prevention looks at also in um, ending impunity. And, you, and so there's always that case of whether or not um, where it is, and I'll bring that in my concluding points, where it is feasible to prosecute prosecute perpetrators of violence, especially sexual violence against women, in cases of trying to negotiate for, the, for more women's release. So a few concluding thoughts that, um, I guess, um, over the whole um, Chibuk case and what um, scholars and academics can think about, and possibly you also have your own views on this, that, well, basically, as if you saw the um, little structure there, you'd realize that all... Um, all the, the interventions were complementary, and the pillars are complementary. I mean, yes, there are some who say there are six pillars, but at least for the four main pillars feed into each other, and they all need broad-based partnerships, not necessarily just those working on WPS itself, but for others who are working on constitutions, in Asian negotiations, even from different areas to be able to implement this agenda and to also hold the government accountable from different sectors. So you need intersectoral partnerships. And as you know, for the at Bring Back Our Girls movement, you also need an international partnership, even with policymakers. And also community healing is necessary. Yes, we can prepare to um, address trauma, stigmatization, and marginalization of the women and girls who have been abducted. But we also need to include um, the communities which would they will be returned back, their families and local government bodies also in these rehabilitation programs because they've been traumatized and actually their fear can lead to rejection of the women and girls we're trying to reintegrate. And then a few contentions, possible contentions I should say. As I mentioned over, over the other one about ending impunity, when is ending impunity and persecution feasible? I mean, because if you notice 1325 actually says we're feasible. 
I mean, prevention versus protection, those questions like that. And root causes. Sometimes try to see when we're trying to explain insurgencies, uh, we were like walking a fine line um, you know, between research and sympathy, objectivity, and then, but is, can we really balance um, looking at the background and root causes? Because that would be indispensable. Is that indispensable for sustainable peace and security? And also the use of case studies. As I said, that most people know about the Chibuk girls, and which is good, because in a way it has brought the whole problem of the insurgency. Probably people only had a Boko Haram for the first time because of the abduction of the Chibuk girls. But then does the focus on them let us not really um, advance research to find out of the other abductees that Boko Haram has? Because if you notice that if they find a female suicide bomber, first report is, oh, we found a Chibuk girl. Then they said, oh, actually it's not a Chibuk girl. But then you're wondering, um, then whose girl is she? From which area is she from? When was she abducted? Um, all those cases, who are the other people? Are we, are we shifting focus by using case studies? And, um, and also, how do we understand those who probably do not want to come back? I mean, right now we only have one, but do we think of it as the Stockholm Syndrome, love, fear of community rejection, or are they feeling that the social and development um, situation they were in were basically the same? Because when we think of um, terrorism with the knowledge of Boko Haram's activities, it kind of makes it difficult to comprehend why someone whom they have abducted, possibly raped or forced marriage, would choose to remain in captivity. How can we explain this situation? Yes. Thank you again, and I would be also grateful for your inputs. Thank you. Yes, my name is Turin Trigistan. I'm a senior researcher and director at the PRIO Center on Gender, Peace, and Security in, in Oslo. Um, I come from a country that is, in international politics, a small state. Uh, but when it comes to the women, peace, and security agenda, I think it's fair to say that Norway is a major actor, actually. Uh, it's been a very strong supporter of this agenda, normatively and politically, but maybe even more so financially. Uh, it's, it's been a, a major donor of a number of NGOs. It has funded a number of processes taking place at the UN, but also for an institution like PRIO and many, many other research institutions, Norway has been willing to provide funding for research on this agenda. Uh, and that's what PRIO has benefited from, and I will give you a introduction to what we are doing. But before I talk about the center, I, I, I will give you just a quick introduction to PRIO, the Peace Research Institute, and a little bit of the history uh, on gender research at PRIO, before then moving to the center. And then I will also say a few words about how we go about holding the Norwegian government to account when it comes to this particular agenda. So uh, the Peace Research Institute in Oslo was established in 1959, and we believe we are the oldest peace research institute in the world. Uh, as far as we know, we have been trying to trace the history of other uh, similar institutions, but we believe we are the oldest one. We are an independent institute. We are a foundation. We are international. Although based in Oslo, we are international. So we have a number of internationals working with us based in Oslo. English is our working language. And we are interdisciplinary. We, we have researchers with all kinds of backgrounds from political science, philosophy, 
social anthropology, psychology. So it, 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 it's a really interesting and thriving research community. We do a, a combination of basic and policy-oriented research, historically maybe more basic research, but in more recent years we have moved more and more to do um, uh, more policy-oriented research. Because we have an ambition of uh, having impact, we want that our research should have an impact on policy development and the lived lives of people in, in conflict areas. We are project-funded. We are a staff of approximately 75 people. We own and host two leading international journals, and these we are really proud of because these are really world-leading. It's the Journal of Peace Research and Security Dialogue. And we also house the editors of two additional um, journals, the International Area Studies Review and Journal of Military Ethics. So then to gender research at PRIO. Uh, in a historical perspective, I think it's fair to say that during the first decades of uh, PRIO's existence, little did happen on, in terms of gender research, but that was also, I think, typical for the period. Uh, the 60s and the early 70s, little happened in international relations, political science when it comes to, to gender research. Uh, there was limited awareness at PRIO about gender issues uh, and also very few women employed. It was a very male-dominated uh, environment. Uh, things started to change uh, gradually in the 1990s. Um, then we had our first small project funding from the MFA, and PRIO appointed its first full-time gender researcher, Inga Schelsbeck, who's sitting here in the back. Um, she did some groundbreaking research on sexual violence in armed conflict, which was really a new topic in the 1990s. And it was quite revolutionary, at least in Norway, that someone did research on, on this. Um, in 2006, there was a major change taking place because then PRIO got a major or a large research funding from, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And we established the Gender Conflict and Peacebuilding uh, Research Project. So I joined PRIO in 2006, working together with Inge Schelsbeck and Helga Harnes. Uh, and the aim, and this is interesting, it was initiated by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and their aim was to build a research capacity in Norway on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. So uh, we were established as a group at PRIO, referred to as the PRIO Gender Team, and one of the first things that we did was to help the Norwegian government out with writing up the Norwegian National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security which was launched in March 2006. And this was the second NAP in the world at the time. So, so uh, it was also, in many ways, groundbreaking w work. We didn't know quite how to go about doing it. So we actually just sat down, reading carefully the text of Resolution 1325, and tried to think, so how does this apply to Norway as a country? And took it from there. Since 2006... We received funding for one year at the time, over a nine-year period, quite frustrating, but we lobbied all the time, tried to have multi-year funding. Um, but still, this funding was the first building block for us. And what we did as the PRIO gender team was to literally walk around in the corridors at PRIO, knocking on the doors of our colleagues and encouraging them to integrate gender perspectives in their research. So gradually, the research community at PRIO grew, 
and we established the pre-agenda research group. And this group is still in existence, and we count now about 20 people, I think. Not all doing full-time gender research, but these are colleagues that have smaller projects or large projects or just a genuine interest in keeping themselves updated on what's happening uh, in terms of gender research. Um, I'm not sure whether I should go into the details here, but this is a list of the kind of research projects that we currently have at PRIA or projects that have recently been finished. But it gives you an indication of what kind of research we are doing. And, and most of these projects are basic research, meaning that these are projects funded by the Norwegian Research Council and they are stretching over three to four years. So, so things have really changed from when we started out with the funding from the MFA, more applied oriented, to then this long list of projects that we now have, um, which is focusing more on basic, basic research. So then uh, in uh, 2015, um, we took the next step. Then we uh, finally got multi-year funding from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So we thought, so why don't we now establish a center to consolidate all the work that we have been doing over the nine years? Uh, and we did the public launch in February 2016, and we were happy to have Christine Chinkin giving a keynote address at that event. And we also had Georgetown represented with Rosalind Warren. Uh, so that was a, a great event for, for us at, at PRIO to, to launch the center. And the objective of the center, as I said, we wanted to consolidate all our research activities uh, and to become a resource hub, uh, not only at PRIO, but also in Norway, on research on women, peace, and security, or gender, peace, and security, as we then uh, agreed that we should rename um, uh, our, our projects. And how to go about becoming that kind of resource hub Focusing on bridging research policy and practice, we want to be a venue for discussion. Uh, we provide policy advice that we have been doing throughout the years before the center was established, but we are continuing doing that. We do a little bit of teaching and training. We do a lot of public outreach, uh, provide information to the public, to journalists, to students. Uh, we organize a lot of meetings and, and uh, we or try to be active in social media and so forth. And the idea behind establishing the center was also to make the broader, what should I say, portfolio at PRIO more visible, the gender research that we are doing, all these projects that I, I listed in, 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 uh, previously. Our activities is organized around these four pillars Research, obviously, being at the research institution, that's important to what we do. And we try to publish both in academic journals, but also in more policy-oriented uh, outlets. In terms of teaching and training, I mean, PRIO is not a, a, a training institution as such. We mainly do research. But we have a couple of exceptions. The UN high-level seminar is something that we are doing together with the UN Department of Political Affairs and the Crisis Management Initiative in, in Helsinki, where we train SRSGs, peace envoys, UN staff in how to become more gender aware in their work. Uh, a new initiative, Nordic Women Mediators, that's quite interesting. Um, all the five Nordic countries have come together to establish this initiative. The idea is to identify women with relevant experience 
bring them together in a network, provide training if they want to. It's, it's quite new, so we are still early days, but this is very interesting and promising, I think. We do a lot of conferences, seminars and workshops, and obviously then policy advice. And I will come back to that. Um, in terms of our research topics, the Women, Peace and Security agenda is broad, but what the core staff at the center are focusing on is primarily the normative framework on women, peace and security, small state norm entrepreneurship, which is really interesting, looking at how a small state like Norway can go about doing what they are doing in, in this issue area. Sexual violence in armed conflict has been very important for us as a topic, uh, both Inga's research and also we have established a database on sexual violence in armed conflict, the SWAC database. We have done a lot of research on national action plans, and now in recent years, women in mediation and peace processes. Um, emerging topics, um, these are issues that we see are really coming now, and there's a great interest in it. Violent extremism, sexual violence prevention, masculinities, migration and gender, children born of war. These are, these are issues that we would like to explore more, uh, to uh, do more research on, but still we, we don't have people working on it right now. Um, feminist foreign policy, an emerging topic, being the neighbor to Sweden. This is something that is hotly debated, and we are going to have elections in, in Norway later this fall, and we know that the Labour Party is debating, should Norway also take on that agenda or not? So that will be really interesting to see. In terms of how we are trying to hold our government accountable, I mean, we, 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 we have worked closely with them since 2006 um, on the national action plans. And the, currently Norway has its third version of the action plan. We are working closely with them, providing policy input, critical input to, to their processes. We do a lot of, we attend a lot of their formal meetings because they have a civil society kind of network that they invite uh, twice a year, where, which is also a platform for us to provide critical remarks, constructive remarks. We like to think of ourselves as a kind of a conversation partner. We, we do a lot of informal consultations with the MFA and also to some extent the Ministry of Defense. Um, and we also try to be proactive. For instance, there was a group within the MFA working uh, for the last or the past year on a new strategy for Norwegian uh, foreign policy. And we realized that this group did not include anything on gender. So that was a, a, a typical situation where we would actually invite ourselves to a meeting at the MFA and point to the fact that, so why don't you do this? You have this action plan you have a lot of strategic initiatives, you do so much in, at the UN or in NATO, so why don't you include this when you now are revising Norway's foreign policy? So that's a, a, a typical way that we are working in terms of being more proactive. Yes, I think I'll stop there. I, had, uh, I thought I had a very nice slide with our contact details, but uh, it has disappeared somewhere <laughs> in space. <laughs> but uh, if, you if you're interested, you can just come to me after, after this, um, this panel and we can provide information. Thank you.
Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be in London again. It's always great to be in London, and uh, it's also wonderful to see so many of you interested in, in women, peace, and security here tonight. Um, I did have quite a long presentation here, but I really would like to just talk about Monash Gender, Peace, and Security Centre, based in Melbourne, Australia, although Monash has campuses in Prato, Italy, and South Africa, and Malaysia, in India, and in China. So we do like to think of ourselves as a bit of a global hub. Um, I want to just really highlight uh, the way we see action research uh, in the Asia-Pacific region um, as a really important way of holding governments accountable for implementing the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda. Um, and I think that here, what I think is the real potential for research communities uh, and scholars and academics who have an independence is to be able to bring community voices, the voices in particular of diverse groups of women who are often excluded from policy-making processes um, and from international or regional forums, um, bring those voices uh, to the fore through our research so that, so that we, they can begin to also shape and address key challenges around peace and security. So I, I do think um, our focus is, is, uh, is not exclusively, but it is quite centrally focused on the Asia-Pacific region. Um, it's the single largest global region in the world. It's an incredibly diverse region, and it's under-researched uh, and underrepresented uh, in terms of the women, peace and security agenda uh, at the United Nations and in other international forums. Um, and there are some really significant challenges in that region that have to do not only with protracted conflict, uh, but also the propensity for natural and climate-induced disasters uh, and real challenges around women's rights, women's human rights, and gender equality. So research, I think, is really key. I mean, we have this real opportunity to connect the grassroots to the macro level and to make a difference. So I want to highlight, uh, actually, I'll go back there, two, two key research projects that we are uh, conducting at Monash GPS, as we like to call ourselves. Uh, one of our medical colleagues said, oh, it, but wouldn't people get confused with GPS, you know, the <laughs> GPS systems? And we said, oh, we didn't think that was a problem in our field. Um, so first I'd like to talk about just a, a, probably our flagship project. It's our largest project, and it's just been going for six months. And here what we're really interested in doing is actually uh, uh, mapping the gender provisions of peace agreements since 2000, actually asking if these gender, these gender provisions, which may have to do with women's human rights, with, with uh, women's participation and representation in post-conflict institutions, which may have to do with remedies and transitional justice mechanisms for sexual and gender-based violence, that also could have to do with women's economic empowerment and relief and recovery, a whole range of different things. So we're analysing all of those provisions, coding them relative to their strength and their implementation implement uh, whether they're feasible to be implemented and then actually looking are they being implemented and what happens to women's participation after peace agreements. So we already know 
uh, from some excellent research that was uh, largely driven out of the Geneva Graduate Institute for International Studies, that women excel at mass action during peace processes. Um, that there's not a single peace process where women have engaged in mass action that didn't eventuate in an agreement, and an agreement that was sustained uh, for more than three years. So that is just a fascinating finding. And we at Monash wanted to build on that finding and find out, okay, well, what happens to women's participation then after that peace agreement? So we're doing research in... Uh, uh, we're first of all doing a global analysis using quantitative research, but then we're doing research on 20 cases and eight field research cases. And here we're looking at cases where you have a peace agreement that's been implemented, one that's ongoing, peace agreements that have strong gender provisions, for example, Colombia, where I'm traveling to tomorrow evening to uh, begin some of the field research, peace agreements that have weak gender provisions and peace agreements that don't have any. And looking at you know, what difference do these things make? And what are the factors really enabling women to actually uh, take the opportunity of a, of a society uh, recovering from conflict to actually reshape their institutions and their societies? Um, so I, I, uh, and I would say that, that we can see this as somewhat action research because we're very much engaging uh, with, with local research organisations and civil society groups and in each country we do research, we've convened an advisory group um, of some of these key organisations so that we can share our findings and, and also uh, help to uh, elevate and disseminate their research findings as well. The second project I really would like to talk about, and I think um, suddenly all, I mean, I think all of us have this sense that it's really important when we're working on women, peace and security or gender, peace and security, uh, to understand uh, the, the relationship to uh, the, the problem of violent extremism and terrorism. Um, and that recognising that, in particular, uh, women's perspectives have not been uh, taken seriously in the CBE and, uh, and terrorism industry. And this, this industry is a massive, uh, massive both in terms of research and in terms of policy and in terms of the security sector. Uh, so we... Uh, funded by the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, decided to pilot a research project looking at uh, women's empowerment and women's diverse roles in preventing violent extremism. We piloted in Indonesia last year in four different sites that each of those sites had a different relationship, different history of conflict, a different relationship to terrorist incidents and terrorist networks and their supply chains. Um, and what we, uh, we have uh, really, I mean, I, I, I feel today, and it's important to say it, and I should also say that this morning, um, just to, to express some solidarity with Londoners, um, I heard that there was also a terrorist incident just two blocks away from my children's school. So um, we are all affected, and there is an urgency to doing this research. Um, and I believe that there's a, a particular purchase that, uh, that uh, women, peace and security can bring here. Um, and I can just, just maybe say a few things about what we found in Indonesia. And I think uh, what's really clear is that, uh, and actually it's fairly universal in all of our participant 
subject participants in the study is that um, there is a, a real concern for the violence of extremism. However, in different contexts uh, and diverse women see really distinct warning signs for that extremism. But almost all of our participants were engaged in some kinds of activities in their everyday lives to prevent, to prevent violence and, and to prevent fundamentalism uh, within, uh, within Islamic religious communities uh, and, and uh, within their communities in general. But I think what was very clear is that there were clear connections between the abrogation of women's human rights uh, and the uh, escalation of fundamentalism. And in Indonesia, it was very clear that uh, the government ha has a very inconsistent approach uh, to violations of women's rights um, and that they are mostly focused on terrorism in terms of jihadi activities but not in terms of the uh, violence in everyday life, you know, which, uh, which is the violence that happens before the major event. Okay, um, and they, they, they are essentially condoning this kind of everyday violence. And that might include all sorts of things, but one of the most common things is the obstruction of public expression, freedom of expression, uh, and uh, public protests. Um, and seeing that the security sector in that country is, uh, is, is, is not upholding those, those basic civil and political rights, and in particular when it involves women, but also LGBTI populations as well. Uh, and what, was also, what is also really interesting in the case of Indonesia, again, the, the country that has probably supplied the largest number of foreign fighters to ISIS um, and has historically provided many, uh, you know, many recruits to attract the transnational uh, Islamic fundamentalist movement, is that there are no frameworks to actually recognise and support women's prevention roles. Um, these are called for in the Security Council resolutions uh, 2122 and 2242, um, but they're not recognised by the government or in the National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. Um, and in fact, so there's very little support for, uh, for, for community groups, for civil society groups and for women's organisations who are engaged in essentially counter-discourses and counter-discourses at a number, of, of a number of different levels in a number of different ways. And I'm happy to, to speak more about that to you later. One of the most fascinating findings in Indonesia was, uh, and this, this picture here really represents it, and you see a number of men here, uh, and this is, this is a photo at Famina, which is an Islamic education uh, association, civil society group, and they train women leaders, women religious leaders in Islam, and they uh, advocate feminism and gender equality as a way toward a more tolerant Islam. They strongly connect gender equality and toleration, and they also see it as one of the most important prevention activities in terms of, you know, in, in terms of uh, ensuring that their, their communities uh, 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 do not engage and do not recruit uh, into violent movements. Um, and I think that, that, this, um, this, that these kinds of initiatives uh, need much more support and coordination. And there's a real role here, not only for governments, but also for international organisations uh, and civil society around the world. Uh, so let me just... Uh, Sum up. There's a few other things that we're doing at Monash GPS, of course, and I think like the other centres, we're really committed to engagement, um, to engagement uh, at all levels, really, 
um, uh, both, both nationally uh, and uh, not, not unlike Norway, Australia has a pro-gender, a uh, whole of foreign policy gender strategy as of February 2016. Um, and uh, they currently this year have had a foreign policy white paper and our centres put in a submission titled Toward a Feminist Foreign Policy for Australia. Apparently it was, one of the, it was recommended reading for everybody in the organisation. <laughs> um, we have a woman foreign minister and we also have a woman secretary of our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and it, and it is having traction on these issues. Um, and uh, so uh, I think that, that I think, uh, you know, one of, the, uh, yep, one of the great things about uh, the LSE hosting this meeting between the five centres here uh, is the opportunity to mutually support one another and to be able to actually support uh, continued uh, and accelerated uh, change toward the achievement of women, peace and security. Thanks very much, Jackie. Um, we've had so much to say that we're actually very um, tight on time. But I'm going to suggest there are some um, roving mics that will be going along with, uh, with the stewards. What I'm going to suggest is that we take uh, a collection, a significant collection of questions in one batch, say five or six, and then give a chance to the um, speakers on the panel to respond. Um, and if, by any chance, we have space for a second round, uh, we'll go for that. So if you can keep your interventions as short as possible, and if I can see a show of hands of anybody who would like to ask a question. So if we start in, in the middle, in the um, orange top there, and then we'll go to the, the row in front in the, in the scarf. Thanks for a really fantastic present, series of presentations. Uh, my name's Jane Sloan. I'm from the Asia Foundation. I'm actually, the question is actually informed by, by my previous role, heading up programs for Global Fund for Women, and it's a question for Nana. Um, I'm really interested, uh, we were um, working with women's movements and women's organisations in Nigeria who were identifying the kind of situation with Boko Haram more than a year before it actually happened and were asking for more funds uh, to really be able to create a strong protection force and to do the kind of work that was needed to stop that happening. They were really um, an early warning system as um, a feminist movement. Um, but no funders at that time were interested in really providing the level of funding that, um, that was required. And it wasn't until the girls were kidnapped that all of a sudden we were inundated with donors wanting to fund women's groups in the country. I'm in really interested to hear from you about what's changed as a result of that situation um, in terms of women's movements, women's groups in that country, and uh, um, any new openness by funders to recognise the critical role that women's movements play in preventing that kind of situation. So just in the row in front, uh, I'm Risha Jarhum. I'm from Yemen. Um, I wanted to thank you, Christine, for raising the point about the arms transfer. Uh, yes, I second that. I echo that. Uh, I was part of uh, the Yemeni Women Pact for Peace and Security. This is a group that was facilitated by UN Women uh, to be part of the uh, peace, to support the peace process uh, in Yemen. Uh, I withdrew later on because I felt that it wasn't uh, a meaningful platform for participation. Uh, my biggest shock for working and peace in Yemen was that the institutions that I thought should champion WPS shocked me. 
Um, for example, the UN women, when we were talking to them that we want, as Yemeni women, develop a national action plan for 1325, they said it is too early for us. Um, when we talked to the UN envoy and we told him we want an independent uh, uh, woman uh, in the peace talks, uh, his response was he doesn't want to upset the, the parties who are in the peace process um, and that um, he... Uh, um, I heard this also from another UN uh, uh, staff who said that women are not ready uh, and women are not qualified to be in the peace process. Although in Yemen we had a very excellent um, example during the, the Arab uprising, after the uh, Yemen uprising, during the transitional period where we had a national dialogue, where the women led the revolution and they earned a 30%, almost a 30% quota in the national dialogue. And that uh, was actually with the support of the UN. So how can we hold the UN accountable to what they preach? Um, and how can, why is there a contradiction uh, between um, what they have been supporting and what is happening right now? Thank you. Thank you. And there's a question down the front, uh, on the fifth row in the, in the jacket, please. Thank you. A very, very splendid set of presentations. It's wonderful to see how academia can join hands with practical action to produce what Jenny Copeland called evidence-based solutions. Uh, however, um, I wonder if the panel could comment on what, they, what can be done or what perhaps the UN could do. You mentioned the UN. Um, ab about the fact that there's a mismatch between words and actions among member states. For example, the Istanbul Convention, which I think you said the UK had not yet signed up to. Um, the Istanbul Convention, having been signed in Turkey, which has just joined the Shanghai Group, which is an extremely re reactionary group of states where human rights count for very little. There's a sort of mismatch between words and actions, I think. Thank you. And then a couple of rows in front uh, in the short sleeve shirt. Thank you uh, for wonderful presentations. Um, I have a question for Jackie. When you were describing your, uh, or sorry, Manash's sort of peace agreement provision implementation project, it seems to really echo a lot of what's happening at the University of Notre Dame and their Peace Accords Matrix project. So I was just wondering uh, if there's any overlap between those two projects or what your project does that the Peace Accords Matrix project, that's sort of the go-to for academics on implementation of Peace Accords, how they're different. Thanks. And the very last question, just, be, just behind. Uh, hello, I'm Amira Lal. Um, I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist, but I've got a special interest in uh, psychological, social health, along with physical health. Thank you to all the speakers for giving a, a wonderful presentation of these issues, which are really, really uh, broad, but you've sort of uh, summarized it very nicely, all of you. Um, my question is about research. Um, do, are the male uh, partners of these women included in the research, and has anyone looked at the effect of violence on the physical, mental, and social health and the future progeny? Because it's known that if a woman is pregnant um, and she faces all this, it can affect the future generations. Uh, chromosomal changes can occur. So have you any uh, research going into this field as well? Thank you. Great, thank you. And if the speakers would like to take a minute each to deal with 
any aspect of that range of questions they want. That's all we have left. Shall we start with you, Christine? Uh, okay, well, there are a great range of questions, and yeah, can't possibly answer them all. Maybe I'll just go to the Istanbul Convention one, which is in fact a Council of Europe convention rather than a UN convention, and does have a monitoring committee. And so Turkey and any other state that's party to it will have to account to the committee. And I think this really comes to the whole essence of the relationship between academia, civil society, and government. And we're all responsible for holding governments to account constantly through the research, through making them comply with the regulations that are within the conventions themselves, in not keeping quiet, you know, in just basically keeping on um, all the time to show that people are concerned about the lack of accountability. Yeah, um, I was just going to, to make a comment along the same lines as Christine about the need to hold governments and, and the UN accountable. I think that the, the positive side is that when they sign up to these agreements, at least there are commitments there, we're explicit, they're providing benchmarks. Um, it's possible then with the, um, the serious kind of evidence and documentation and the feedback um, from, from people uh, and groups to actually show where the breaches are being made. Um, but then it's important to be using that information in a whole variety of ways. Um, and academia can do that to some extent, and that involves kind of the outreach and the dissemination that we're talking about and not being... Uh, um, restricted to ivory towers um, and engaging very importantly with um, with local organisations, local groups. I think the sorts of things that Jackie was mentioning as well in terms of the, the local participatory groups to, to share the findings. Uh, okay, well, thank you for your questions. I think I'll deal with the one that's directed to me on um, basically women's groups and funding. Um, the shortest answer is that unfortunately we haven't actually done research in that area, so, but it's quite an interesting area. But what I was surprised about was how women's groups, um, which had this early warning systems, didn't get it fed into ECOWAS because ECOWAS does have a civil society um, partner um, on, for its early warning system. That's the West African Network on Peace Building. So I'm just interested how women's groups were not able to go through their civil society partner to ECOWAS on that issue. Thank you. Yes, uh, maybe to follow up on, on, on uh, Christine and, and Jenny on, on how to hold member states and the UN accountable. I, I've been following processes at the UN now for quite some years, and I think in many ways that we are at a crossroads now, that there are real changes taking place, especially now with the new Secretary General. Uh, he seems to be genuine in his wish to reform the peace and security architecture of the UN uh, and is now implementing a number of different kinds of policies to not least to increase the number of women in, in key positions at, at the UN. And, and also I, I was in New York in, um, when was it now, early March, together with my colleague, um, attending a number of, of meetings. And, and we could now really see how member states have they've started to compete about who is going to be best in delivering on women, peace, and security issues. And for me, that was really fascinating. Because if you go back maybe five years and you went to the, those kinds of meetings, you would typically see that there were mainly women around the table, typically quite young women, uh, dealing with human rights issues, social issues at the, at the UN um, missions. 
But now those sitting around the table were ambassadors uh, talking about these issues and committing to this agenda. So I think there is something happening uh, mm-hmm. at the UN. Uh, although we have countries like the U.S. <laughs> who might not deliver, uh, but there are other, <laughs> other countries uh, picking up uh, this agenda and, and, and really want to deliver. So, so I'm, I'm maybe too optimistic, but I think there is a real change taking place now uh, with the ongoing reform process. Uh, and then to the question of to what extent we include men and uh, male partners in our research. At, at PRIO, we don't do much research down at, at, at country level or household level, but we have done a little bit on, of research on maternal health in relation to conflict and also looking into the male partners, the fathers, the role of the fathers. And there are some interesting findings. I can't quite repeat it all, but we, I, we can talk afterwards maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the theme that came through in a number of questions uh, about the mismatch between words and action. Um, and I think that's actually what we're all trying to address, and, and that's what actually uh, feminist research can do. Um, and I think, you know, if we think about the Dayton Peace Accord in 1995, I mean, you actually didn't have any gender provisions in it. It was all men. Um, so we could really kind of see, the, you know, there was no, the words were, you know, they weren't there, and there was no action there either. And now we have these peace agreements which have lip service, right? Some of them just have lip service. Some of them have actually actionable provisions. Um, but it's not enough to just have a statistic to say, you know, 80% of peace agreements now kind of mention women and girls and gender equality. Um, actually, you know, are those actually put into practice? Um, and what do a range of different actors on the ground say about that? So it was great to have the contribution from Yemen because in our research we're going to talk to people like you about what the UN says they're going to do and what, how the UN obstructs themselves, the women, peace and security agenda. Mm-hmm. And we're talking to everyone. So if you have suggestions for who we should talk to, please let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to make that public. And then that's an opportunity for advocates to run with that research. Um, and, 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 and here, you know, um, to, to hold all actors accountable, not only the UN and member states, uh, but also businesses uh, and, and financial organi- international financial institutions, which also play a role, especially uh, in, in post-conflict. Um, and I think, you know, increasingly states, um, I, I just loved it. I'm a citizen of Australia and New Zealand, and, and New Zealand, when it ran for the Security Council, its campaign slogan was, we do what we say. We say what we do. <laughs> and it's great. So uh, all states want to say that. Well, you know, I think we can find out. Do they actually do what they say? Great, thank you. If you had a question I didn't get to you, I do encourage you to grab one of the speakers uh, in the reception afterwards and have, a, and have a chat with them. But before thanking them, let me also just um, identify an event that we are um, having tonight, say, uh, tomorrow night, uh, same time and same place, uh, where WPS is hosting a film screening of Under the Shadow which tells the story of Masika Kutsuva, who is working closely with survivors of sexual violence in Congo on a search for healing, independence, and justice. And the film showing uh, here will be followed by a Q&A with the director, Fiona Lloyd-Davis, uh, Sophia Candeas of the UN team of uh, experts on sexual violence, and Vava Tampa, founder of the cam- campaign group um, Save the Congo. So tomorrow, same time, same place, uh, if you want to see that. Otherwise, please join us um, outside for reception and join me in thanking our five excellent... Uh,